0: Our speaker today spoke last time at our summer series. This series gives us a great opportunity to meet friends, invite folks in that we've never had an opportunity to hear before. And last summer we did that. Dr. Robert Smith came and spoke in the morning services last year, and so many folks emailed him or emailed us as well, Stephen, and as uh, they were writing to Stephen, talking to us, said, we've got to have Dr. Smith back again. And his schedule was such that... He was able to be back with us this year. Dr. Smith, for those of you who may not remember many of the details of it, let me just introduce him again, tell you a little bit about his life and background. He lives in Cincinnati, Ohio. He works, teaches full-time in Birmingham, Alabama. He's on his way today down to a faculty retreat this week, and they begin seminary. He is the professor of preaching at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. Dr. Smith graduated from college seminary in Cincinnati, went on for his doctorate at the Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. As he was doing those works he began to pastor the church New Mission Missionary Baptist Church in Cincinnati, pastored it for 20 years, then returned to complete his PhD. Upon completing then his Ph.D., he was also then teaching full-time at the Southern Seminary and became from there then the full-time professor of teaching at Beeson Divinity School where he's been teaching since. He has won numerous awards. He was awarded the Teacher of the Year in 2005 at Beeson. He is a contributing editor for the magazine Preparing for Christian Ministry, a study then in the African-American Church on ministry. He has written the book. His most popular, famous book is this one that I hold here. It's available in the back. It's called Doctrine That Dances, Bringing Doctrinal Preaching and Teaching to Life. This book won the 2008 Preaching Book of the Year Award in Preaching Magazine, in 2009, this book won the Preaching Book of the Year Award from Christianity Today. In 2010, Preaching Magazine named Doctrine That Dances one of the 25 most influential books on preaching in the last 25 years. I use it as one of the supplementary reading textbooks right here in Shepherd Seminary. Excellent on how you preach doctrine and just it is heavy-duty doctrine just woven right through your message. He did that in the first hour. You'll hear it again in this hour. Tremendous way to teach and preach doctrine right into the Word of God. He has spoken in more than fifty universities and colleges around this country, Great Britain and the Caribbean. His research interests include the place of passion in preaching, the literary history of the African-American preaching, Christological preaching, and theologies of preaching. At Beeson, as we said, he teaches in the area of homiletics, he and his wife, Dr. Wanda Taylor-Smith, she's not able to be with us today, she was with us last time, are the parents of four adult children. Love this man, great to have him with us again. Would you help me welcome Dr. Robert Smith back to the Pulpit of Colonial Baptist Church.
1: Even now, Lord Jesus, for I ask this in your name, Amen. God be praised. What a delight it is to be at Colonial again. I want to thank God for Dr. Stephen Davey for the um, privilege of sharing in this place, this pulpit where the gospel is preached every Sunday without compromising, without mixing, without limiting, but the whole counsel of God. John chapter 11, I want to read verses 18 through 46 and verse 53. During the 8 o'clock service, we visited John 11, 1 through 17. Let's continue our rendezvous through John 11 by reading John 11, verses 18 through 46 and verse
0: 53.
1: I want to ask you a question that I asked the 8 o'clock crowd Have you been to Bethany? Have you been to Bethany? And I want to convey this truth. Bethany exists in order to give birth to belief, which will be transformed into redemptive activity. Would you say that with me? Bethany exists in order to give birth to belief, which will be transformed into redemptive activity. Now, if this sounds right, I want you to say it like you believe. It. If it sounds right, uh, if you're skeptical about it and you're speculating about it and you think that it harbors a, a bit of heresy, don't say anything. But if you really believe this um, and you trust the Spirit to bring it to you, say it with me like you mean it. Bethany exists. Bethany exists. In order to give birth to belief, which will be transformed into redemptive activity. Hear these words, John 11, verses 18 and following. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him While Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you asked of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead for days. Jesus said to her, did not I tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! Dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what he had done. Verse 53. So from that day on, they planned to put him to death. Bethany exists in order to give birth to belief which will be transformed into redemptive activity. I rehearse with the 8 o'clock congregation uh, that John reserves his proposition, that is his purpose for writing the gospel, until the next to the last chapter. It is revealed to us in John chapter 20 verses 30 to 31. Many other miracles, simoin is the Greek word, many other signs did Jesus of Nazareth, which are not written in his book. But these things are written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and in believing you might have life through his name. All seven signs. John 2, the turning of water into wine. John 4, the healing of the nobleman's son. John 5, the healing of the 38-year paralytic, a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. John 6, the feeding of the 5,000. John 6, the walking of Jesus on the water. John chapter 9, the healing of the blind man who had never seen anything before. And our miracle, John 11, the raising of Lazarus from the tomb after he had been buried for four days. The purpose is that we might believe. And we are told in verse 4 of this chapter that the sickness that Lazarus had was not unto death, rather it was for God's glory that the Son of God might be glorified in order that we might ultimately believe. And this belief comes up in verse 14 and 15. Jesus said to the disciples, Lazarus is dead and I'm glad that I was not there so that you might believe. And Jesus says to Martha and asked her a question after he said that he is resurrection and the life in verse 25 and 26. Do you believe this? And her response is in verse 27, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who has come into the world. And then when Jesus gets ready to call Lazarus from the tomb and says to the servants, roll back to stone, Martha protests in verse 39 and said, Lord, it's been four days, his body is stinking. And Jesus's response in verse four is, Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God. And when Lazarus is raised from the dead, verse 45, some believe. Verse 46, others doubted and went and told the, the Pharisees. And verse 53, from that point on, when Lazarus is raised from the dead, Jesus is being thought of every day so that they can put him to death. The purpose of miracles is to bring us to a place where we believe that Jesus is who Jesus really is. Now let me move to verse number eighteen. I did all of that in about four minutes. I covered seventeen uh, verses in four minutes when it took me forty minutes to do that the first. That's quick. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. <laughs> verse eighteen. He showed up four days after the funeral. And John in verse 18 makes this little note. Bethany is two miles from Jerusalem. It seems like it's an innocent notation. It seems like it's extraneous. It seems like it's unnecessary. Bethany is two miles from Jerusalem. But it is highly theological and very significant because it's not just a matter of distance. Bethany represents the antecedent. Jerusalem represents the subsequent. Bethany represents the place of bereavement. Jerusalem represents the place of blessing. Bethany represents the place of a cause, which is sin, death. Because death came as a result of sin. And the last enemy that will be destroyed will be death. But Jerusalem is the place of the cure. Because at Jerusalem, he will not only die on Friday, but will get up on Sunday morning with all power in his hand. I just think John is trying to tell us Yes, we've got to live at Bethany, but Jerusalem is not far away, just two miles away. The answer is two miles away from the problem. And if you can just hold out until tomorrow, if you can just keep faith through the night, if you can just hold out till tomorrow, then everything will be all right because weeping may endure for a night. But joy comes in the morning. If you're in Bethany right now, Jerusalem is just two miles away. Just trust him that is on his way because Bethany exists in order to give birth to belief, which will be transformed into redemptive activity. Martha hears that Jesus is on the outskirts of town, not downtown, uh, but out in the suburbs. He can't afford to go downtown to Bethany because once he raises Lazarus from the dead, it's from that point on, according to verse number 53, that the Pharisees and the ecclesiastical bosses will uh, attempt to put him to death. So he has to time his trip to Bethany. The Bible says in John 12 and 1 that he really doesn't get to Bethany until six days. The Passover is coming. He gets there. Not here in verse number 19 and 20. Martha hears that he has come to the outskirts, the suburbs of Bethany. And she goes out to him and says to him in verse 21, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. That is a true statement. I told the eight o'clock crowd that's true. Because whenever the author of life, Jesus, meets death, then death dies. Uh, it's not possible for it to be a, a standoff. Not possible. Death dies. It did with uh, the daughter of Jairus, it did with the widow of Nain's son, and it will with Lazarus. She's right. And then she says, but even now, verse 22 whatever you ask the Father, He will give it to you. Her problem is not with the heretofore, the past. Her problem is not with the hereafter, the future. Her problem is with the here and now, the present. Even now, she says. And the question is, does she really believe that we have fought over the sufficiency of the Bible for a long time, I hope we have won that battle. I hope we've settled that, that we believe forever, O oh Lord, thy word is settled in heaven, that we really believe that the Bible is not Gulliver's Travels or any other kind of book. We believe that this is God's word, that it does not contain God's word, but that it is God's word. I hope that we have settled that. Here's, the, here's what we got to settle. It's not, is the Bible sufficient? But is Christ sufficient for our day? That's the question. We love the quote, Hebrews 13 and 8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, day, day, and forever. We believe he's the same yesterday because he performed miracles then. We believe that he's the same forevermore and he will perform and do great works then. But our big struggle is, do we believe that he's the same today? Is he able to do today what he did yesterday and what he will do tomorrow? We say we do. But life experiences that come at us cause us to panic and to pull out plan B because he doesn't show up in Bethany when we need him. So we pull out the Abraham and Sarah card because we know that we got to help God out. And God, like mama would say, don't need no help. And every time I come up with my plan B, and you come up with your plan B to assist omnipotence, listen to how that sounds assist omnipotence. We mess up. Stay out of it, Robert Smith. Brothers and sisters, if he promised it by his word, stay out of it. Get your box seat around the ringside and watch God go to work, and he will do what he said he'll do. Is Christ sufficient? John Locke, who was one of the great architects and thinkers in the Enlightenment movement, says this about a miracle. And it's amazing uh, that one who is influenced by deism, that is, that God had made the world and like a clock, uh, threw it out into space, and that you and I have everything within us to do what we need need to do, and that the universe is closed, and that God is not capricious, uh, and God is not uh, predictable, and that God will not step, break through um, the laws that he has made, disturb the laws he's made, annul and cancel and set aside the laws that he's, he has made, that he's given us all that we need to work things out. Deism, humanism, um, it, it comes from a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of our pastors. A lot of us who have this particular pastor. It's just an observation. I hope it doesn't hurt your feelings. But um, Ophir Renfri and other people are uh, serve as our pastors. That you reach inside of yourself, you have the energy and you have the power. If that's true, then you don't need God. I want you to know you don't have the energy and you don't have the power outside of God's. Only God can do what no other power can do. This is what John Locke says about a miracle. He says a miracle is a sensible operation that is above human comprehension and contrary to the established course of nature. It is a sensible operation. It doesn't mean he didn't mean by that it's logical. It's something that you experience with your senses. What you can see, what you can hear, what you can smell, what you can taste, and what you can feel. But it's above human comprehension. You can't figure it out. And don't try to demystify the mystery of God. Don't try to unscrew the inscrutability of God, and don't try to figure out the unfigure ability of God. God just works in mysterious ways. His oneness to perform, He plants His footsteps on the sea, and He rides on every storm. There ought to be some things that happen in your life that absolutely blow your mind. I don't care if you've got twenty thousand PhD. In fact, don't get up, get all all excited when you get a PhD. If you got a PhD, the last time I checked the English al- alphabet, there were twenty six letters, so you've got three of them. P- PhD, and you got 23 more <laughs> letters to get, so don't get your head all full. That's only a Ph.D. in one area, and you don't even have all the letters. <laughs> it's a sensible operation above human comprehension that you can't understand, and contrary to the established course of nature, that God can do what God wants to do. Because he looks at water and he decides he needs to go to disciples who are struggling on the Sea of Galilee for their life. So what he does is to turn water into a moving sidewalk when you're supposed to sink, he walks on it. And God can do what God wants to do. If he wants to send a a chariot with reins of fire, with horses of fire pulled by these horses of fire and Elijah has no asbestos suit has no oxygen and goes beyond the The ionosphere and the stratosphere and breaks the gravitational pull of gravity. If God wants to do that, he can. He can make an ox head float if he wants to do that. And he can let a man stink and corrupt for four days and call him back. And the doctor can examine him and say, he has perfect health. It is contrary to the laws of nature. And God calls you. And God calls me. Because it's an insult to God, whenever... We doubt him. You ought to have had enough past experiences that it can give you present confidence so that when you run into a crisis, you and I ought to be able to say, like David said when he faced Goliath, when a lion attacked my, when a lion attacked my father's sheep, I killed it. When a bear attacked my father's sheep, I killed it. And if God can give me power over a lion and a bear who attacked my father's sheep, God will give me victory over you uncircumcised giant. And whatever afflicts you and affects you, you and I ought to be able to look back in our past and pull out the vocabulary of the name of God and say, because God did it in the past, He's able to do it now. I trust Him. I believe in Him. I wait on Him and not be panic-stricken to the point that we become demoralized and our faith becomes paralyzed. Do you really believe this, Martha? How is belief born anyway? Because Jesus will say, you believe that you'll see your brother again, I just told you that you'll see him again, and your response to me In verse 24, is, yes, Lord, I know I'll see him again, but it'll be in the resurrection. The last resurrection, the general resurrection. Jesus says, look, I'm not talking about a doctrine. I'm not talking about a proposition. I'm not dealing with feces. I'm not dealing with a sensual idea, a big idea, Haddon Robinson. I'm talking about the personification of of resurrection. I am the resurrection. In other words, we're not talking about resurrection. You're looking at resurrection. I am the resurrection. Now we take and formulate and we can define and we can exegete and talk about the resurrection. But the real question is, have you and I met the resurrected Lord who transforms life? Then he says, the ones who believe in me, though they're dead, they'll live again. And the ones who live and believe in me, they'll never die. Which may mean the one like Lazarus who believed in me, though he's dead, he'll live again. And the ones like you who are living, who believe in me, will never die. Or he may be pointing to us in the future or future generation. But the one thing is, 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 is certainly true. Regardless of how commentators talk about this, you and I have eternal life now And it is ongoing eternal life. Folk who think they have to wait until the judgment before it's determined whether or not they have eternal life, that's settled right here. The role is called down here. Salvation is given to us here. We're not working to be saved. We're working because we are saved. We're not working to salvation. We're working from salvation. It's already settled down here. And we will never die in terms of eternal life. For those who are born twice physically and born again will only have to die once physically and then we'll live with him forever. He asked, do you really, do you believe this, verse 26? How is faith born? Ansam, the great figure in church history, says that truth is faith-seeking understanding. Seeking understanding. That's, that's really what truth is. It's, it's, it's faith seeking understanding. And in this life, you and I are constantly seeking. I know we, we sing, we'll understand it better by and by, which means even in the afterlife, that song is really saying, you still don't understand everything there is to understand. You will never understand God completely. I think an eternity of eternities will never fully reveal who God is. I think after a billion, billion years, we'll understand that much more about God's grace. And after a zillion, zillion years, we'll understand that much more about God's love. And uh, after a quintillion years, we'll understand that much more about God's mercy. Because there is no end to God. And wouldn't heaven be boring after you figured out, God, what you going to do for the rest of eternity? So God just leaves himself unrevealed so that we can continue to worship him in all of his mystery. How's faith revealed? Faith is obtained not only by truth seeking, uh, truth which is faith seeking understanding, but praise seeking understanding. Praise. In other words, what I don't understand, I still praise. And I come to Gethsemane, and I don't understand why God has allowed this and why God has permitted this? But I still bow down and I say to God, I praise you, though I don't understand it. Amen. Because after all, how do I understand Romans eight thirty two? Which means I may not even get done with this. Which means I'll just have to go on and finish up the third, uh, the third message. Since which I want to preach something else, but the Lord just said, "No, you camp out here." So let me just camp out here. <laughs> Romans eight thirty two. He who spared not his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. Shall he not with him freely give us all things? How do you understand that? I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on the cross in disgrace, but Jesus, God's son, took my place. I was spared because his son was not. We praise him even though we do not understand what he is doing Martha says in verse 27 yes Lord I believe that you are the Christ son of God who's coming to the world she said she believed it. good because when you make that kind of confession God is not going to just let you quote that text he's going to move a devil right next to you to see how well you believe it let a crisis and a circle it's fine to come here and worship and sing these great songs and shout and preach wonderful But you're going to have to stand against some incident in your life and say, I really do believe. Verse 28, Martha comes and she leaves Jesus and she goes and tells her sister, "Uh, Mary, the Lord is here and he's calling for you. And every time you see Mary, she's in a seated position. And the Bible says in 29 that she gets up from where she is abruptly and she goes Jesus. Verse 30 is very um, significant because it it tells us that Jesus was in the same place where Martha was. He never leaves. He'd stayed there. Mary had to meet him in the same place. Guess what? You meet him in the same place. He never leaves in order to meet us because he's omniscient. He is ubiquitous. He's everywhere at the same place at the same time. He's so big that if he moves anywhere in the universe, he bumps into himself. There, there is no place where he is not. He's in that same place where your mama met him, and your grandmama met him. He's in the same place where you met him 10 years ago when you had an insurmountable challenge. He has not moved. Now, if anyone has moved, it's I have moved, but he never moves. He is really faithful according to his loyal covenant love. Which means that he is not moved even by my faithlessness. Because when I'm faithless, he's still faithful. And he loves me even when I'm disobedient. I am so glad I serve a God like that. He's not contractual. He's covenantal. If it was contractual, basically what it would mean is if I do my part, he'll do his part. I do 50%, he he does 50%. But if I don't do my 50%, he won't do his 50%. Not God. Augustine said that God loves you. God loves you, and God cannot love you more, and God cannot love you less. God can't love you more if you do wonderful, and God can't love you less when you've had a real bad disobedient day. He just loves you. Isn't it wonderful to be loved like that? That there's no way that you can make his love mercurial where it goes up and down based upon your faithfulness or your faithlessness. He just loves you, which motivates me. That's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, the love of Christ constrains me. What propels me, what stimulates me, what motivates me is the fact that God loves me. I'm not motivated because I'm afraid that God is going to pour his wrath down on me, but he's been because he's been so good. If I was at home, I'd tell you, because he woke me up this morning and started me on my way because he's been good to me and better to me than I've been to myself. That's what motivates me because God has been so good. Why wouldn't you want to serve a God who loves you when you're loveless and picks you up, turns you around, and places your feet on solid ground? He just loves me. And as a result of that, you and I ought to serve him and praise him because he, as in Hosea eleven four, draws us with cords of Love. Well, Martha tells Mary this, and the Bible says that Mary runs quickly to the tomb. Verse 31, the mourners think that um, she is going back to the tomb to weep there over her brother, Lazarus, who's been dead for four days. And so they follow her. And when she gets to Jesus, that is Mary, she says the same thing to Jesus that Martha said. They're sisters. They're real close. Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died, which is a true statement. And yet, as I said to the eight o'clock crowd, Jesus did not have to be there in order for Lazarus to be raised. In fact, he could have spoken a word like he did to the nobleman's son in John 4, to 53, and Lazarus could have been healed even before he died, but he didn't do it. Because Bethany exists in order to give birth to belief, which would be transformed into redemptive activity. A strange statement in verse 33. When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the mourners around her weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He's done some strange things here. In verse number six, when he gets the email, the faxed The telegram that Lazarus is sick, he stays where he is for two days. In verse 14 and 15, he says to the disciples, Lazarus is dead and I'm glad I was not there. And now, here he is, becoming greatly disturbed and deeply moved because he's looking at Mary and the mourners crying. What? I think that Jesus is greatly disturbed and deeply moved. One because Mary should have known better. Jesus stopped in their home, Mary and Martha, many times. They know, she knows of his miracles. She knows that he is able, and yet she is weeping out of a sense of loss of her brother, but this reflects upon her lack of faith. I think that's one of the reasons. Mary, you ought to know. That I am not in time, but time is in me. And that it's never too late. You ought to know that. You know I've raised people before. You know that. And it caused him to be greatly disturbed and deeply moved, but also because of the hypocritical nature, the um, changing and shifting nature of people. I think that the mourners are some of the people in verse number thirty-seven, who say, "Why isn't it that this man Jesus, who um, gave the blind man his sight, why wasn't he able to keep Lazarus from from dying? Why couldn't he raise him?" Questioning, doubting—that's the issue. Doubt. I think it breaks the heart of God when we doubt, as if we are saying to God. I finally came into a circumstance that you can't handle. Yeah, yeah. Back in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, because miracles really do not, um, miracles are supposed to serve as Samoan, pointers, signs that point to Christ. It's not the miracle. It's what the miracle does. It points to Christ that we might believe in Christ. And in this story, uh, here is a man who had given no thought um, to Jesus, and now he winds up in Hades, which is a stopover for the permanency of hell. And now he wants to become um, missionary-minded. Lord, I've got five brothers. Uh, send somebody to warn them not to come here. It's nice to be evangelistic, uh, but you don't want to wait to go to Hades to be evangelistic. Do, do that while you're on earth. Uh, do that while you are living. It's too late then. And then he said, no. He said, look, It says, uh, Jesus said, look, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament. Uh, Well, no, but if one rose was raised from the dead, then they would believe. Jesus says, no, even if someone was resurrected from the dead, they still wouldn't believe. And here it is in this chapter, because Lazarus is resurrected from the dead. And in verse 46, people doubted, told the Pharisees. And in verse 53, these ecclesiastical bosses from that time on tried to put Jesus to death. People get all excited about miracles, but they never get hold of Jesus. And it's not a financial miracle. It's not a physical miracle. It's not a relational miracle. It's what the miracle does. It ought to point to the God who brought it so that you and I praise him and we don't get caught up in the miracle. We get get caught up in the work and the one that the miracle points to. Jesus is deeply disturbed and angry. And even verse 35, without context, if you want to see the physiological, the human Jesus, uh, these verses show the emotions and the passions of Jesus like no no other verses in the gospel. I mean, he's touched, he's weeping. And they say in verse 36, my, how he must have loved him. Now, let me go on and finish this. Let me rush through this. Verse 38, Jesus says, he says to, the, to them in verse 34, show me where you laid him. Verse 38, he gets to Bethany Cemetery and says, roll back stone, roll it back. Because there was a trench, like a sliding glass door uh, kind of uh, over a slide where you could slide the door back. It's a surplus stone that you could roll back. And the persons uh, that rolled it to close it, uh, could also roll it back because what Jesus wants to do and he didn't need them to do that he wants them to be witnesses of the miracle so they can say look I took the stone and rolled it back I saw it it's not hocus pocus, apricadabra it's not open sesame I did it because he wants us to be participators in the miracle he wants us to be a human instrument in divine, uh, human, uh, divine instrumentality so that we we'll participate God's not going to do it all Fill up the water pots, I'll turn it into wine. March around Jericho walls, I'll bring down the walls. You do your part, I will do mine. You're not necessary, but I want you to be witnesses so you can testify what I have done. Roll it back. Martha I want to inform you Lord you must not know this even though I'm calling you Lord uh, you, you must have had some kind of, um, of, uh, of shortage in your mind he's been dead four days and you know after four days the body petrifies and corrupts there is skin slippage there is the exuding of fluids out of the body in four days there's the uh, dissolving of red and blood of vessels and the dissolving of organs major and minor four days Lord he Lord. what I'm trying to say is Lord don't embarrass us. He stinks. (laughs) And I don't know why the Lord waits until four days, until things start stinking. Relationships stink. Your economic situation stinks. Your relationship stinks. I don't know why. Why do you show up when things start stinking? I don't know why he does this, but sometimes he'll he'll tell Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a child. Now, Abraham is 75 when God says this. Abraham has two brothers. Their names are Haran and Nahor. So they're three brothers, Haran, Abraham, and Nahor. Haran, the brother of Abraham, gets married and has a child. Nahor, the brother of Abraham, marries and has a child. But Abraham gets married and doesn't have a child for at least 25 years. And it's not until... Sarah is postmenopausal and Abraham is old, that God does something. Why didn't you do it when, why didn't you choose Haran? You could have had the promised seed come through Haran. You could have had the promised seed come through Nahor. Why you choose Haran? I mean, why didn't you choose Abraham and wait 25 years until there's no physiological reproduction possible? Because sometimes something gets in the way of God. God waits until you are reduced to nothing. Your somethingness, Robert Smith, gets in the way. God has to start with nothing. That's what he did with creation. Creatio ex nihilo. He spoke something out of nothing. And sometimes God's going to wait until things stink in your life. And you've been praying and you've been seeking God. But things just keep on stinking and wasting away and petrifying and interrupting. And when all hope seems to be gone. He shows up in your Bethany and brings life out of death. I think I can close this. Let me do that. Mary did not tell you, verse 40, Martha, did not tell you that if you believe that uh, you would see the glory of God. You said you believed in verse 27, but you're not acting like it. Now, I'm going to bring you before this stone and see if you really believe this. And Jesus looks up, and he doesn't pray a prayer of supplication at all. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. Lord, I know you've always heard me, and I know you're hearing me now, but for the sake of those who are standing around, I want you to do what you're going to do without even saying that, that people might believe that you have sent me. It's just thanksgiving. He doesn't ask one request. He knows that the Father understands it. He doesn't say amen, To open the prayer, close the prayer. In fact, it's strange when you listen to Jesus. Since he is the amen, he doesn't have to say amen. I kind of think that we don't need to say amen when we pray. And you and I get on our knees and we close our eyes and we thank God and we go to sleep and we say amen. Don't, we don't need to say amen. It's a continuing conversation. Because we say to God when we don't say amen, I'll talk to you in the morning, either down here or up there. So good evening, I'll talk to you in the morning, one way or the other. He is the amen. And he goes on and he admits that God has heard him and God is hearing him and he wants God without even saying that for the benefit of others to do what only God can do. And he takes, help me, Holy Ghost, help me. And he takes and tells them he roll back stone. They roll back stone. And then he stoops down, I'm sure, and says, Lazarus, with a loud voice, come forth. He had to say Lazarus because he's a resurrection of life. And had he said, come forth, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would have gotten up there. Sarah and his got up there. Rachel and Rebekah would have gotten But he had to be specific. It's not your time yet. Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, whose name means one whom God helps, came forth. The dead obeyed. The Lord never has problems with dead folk. They obeyed it's Robert Smith and a bunch of all of us that we struggle and we have to interrogate him and ask him why and how long and where and how much but Lazarus came forth but he came forth doing the Bethany shuffle because he's (laughs) bound we know he did that because when Jews buried their day they took white linen and they put their bodies in the white linen, because Jews were buried on the same day they died, a separate piece of linen for the head, for the hands, and for the feet, and wrapped him up. But they took off the outer garment, but he's bound head, feet, and hand, and is doing the Bethany in shepherd. <laughs> this is a picture of justification. Because like Lazarus, all of us were dead and trespassing in sin. We weren't swooning, we weren't in a coma. We didn't trip. We fell. We were dead. And the only one who could call us from spiritual death was the Lord. If you are saved, it's because he saved you from sin, death, and trespasses. But, bam. An amazing thing. Jesus said, loose him and let him go. You notice in John chapter 20, verses 6 and 7, when Jesus came out of the grave, he left the grave closed. The Bible says that when uh, John will go in, uh, he'll see, and Peter will see from the outside as well, he'll see that the head band is uh, separate and laying on the side. And then there, there are the strips for the feet and for the hand. Just in the grave. He didn't come out with grave clothes on like Lazarus did. It's as if Jesus was saying, I'm going to leave these grave clothes in the grave. Because Robert Smith's gonna need them. I'm not going back in the grave. I'm not gonna die again. But Robert Smith's gonna need them one of these days. So I'm gonna leave them in the grave. So Robert Smith and other saints can put them on. But one of these days, the grave clothes will be of no more use. Because we will live eternally and we will exchange garments. That's what John. I heard the elders say in Revelation seven thirteen, These are they who've come up out of great tribulation. They washed their robes and they made them whites in the blood of the Lamb. Ain't no grave gonna hold my body down. I will rise again. My time is up. Bethany exists in order to give birth to belief, which will be transformed into redemptive activity. Have you been to Bethany? Father, we thank you today for being the blessing in our Bethany, being the cure in our Bethany, being the power in our Bethany. Help us to know that you will come on your time and you will redeem our experiences even pain is not wasted in your divine economy i pray for anyone here who has not acknowledged that you are the christ the son of the living god will trust you your sacrifice the blood that you shed to cleanse their hearts the spirit that you sent to live in them and to save and keep them and seal them to the day of redemption We commit this time of decision into your hand in Jesus' name.